Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Athea Sam here. Welcome to Unleash the Man Within. Man, oh man, do we have a treat for you today. Benji Nolot is the founder of Exodus Cry. Now, I'm going to guess that a bunch of you probably have already heard of Exodus Cry. If you haven't, man, I highly, highly recommend them. Um, they are an organization that is really doing a couple of incredible things. So they have started by raising awareness about the, the harms of human trafficking and maybe the prevalence of it, just how widespread it is and how insidious that entire field really is. Uh, they have raised incredible amounts of awareness on the harmful effects of pornography, including some, some documentary, a, a documentary in particular called Raised on Porn that has gone absolutely viral and has had millions of views. And then more recently, they've had a lot of campaigns to enhance legislation, to uh, again just further some of their uh, some of these endeavors, just all similar, all along the lines of trying to make this world a better place. And they have done a really, really good job doing it. Uh, what I would say about Exodus Cry in particular is that they 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 are doing things with excellence. And I don't know about you guys, but I just find sometimes, like especially in like when, you, when it comes to making films and stuff, sometimes they're just not that well done in the Christian space. It's been a little bit embarrassing, if I'm being honest, over the years. And it's just really, really cool to see people like uh, Benji who are stepping up to the plate, who are doing things with excellence, but really like getting a message across that is incredibly gospel-centered, but also incredibly impactful on a global scale regardless of your religious stance and so i just felt so incredibly honored to sit down with him he, you can tell he's very creative uh, he he cares deeply and this is a, a guy who's on a mission and i don't know if anything is ever going to stop him he's just kind of got that that quiet intensity about him where you're just like geez louise man nothing is going to stop you from seeing your mission through and so uh, i've just found him really inspiring and i learned a lot from him a couple things for you guys for you guys to think about as you listen to this so that you can extract the most value from it. Number 1, understand the link between pornography and sex trafficking. We get into it in quite a bit of detail and it is honestly it is just mind-blowing. And I kind of wondered, I'm like, you know, if I knew this when I was struggling, I'm not saying that it would have just like set me free of my addiction overnight it probably would have made it more compelling to quit sooner. So I think when he really gets into like the five different ways that porn and sex trafficking intersect, you're really, you're going to be blown away. And then when we start getting into sort of the projects they're working on, what they're sort of pioneering and what they're hoping to see in the future, man, I just got fired up. Like they have, they have some cool visions for what's ahead. And whether you are a parent, whether you're single, whether you're married, young, old, rich, poor, it has an impact on your life specifically and certainly the lives of your loved ones and the people that are in your circles of influence. So you're going to learn a ton. You're going to be really inspired and hopefully you learn a thing or, uh, or you gain a thing or two along the way that's going to move you a little bit further into this recovery journey. So without further ado, here's my interview with Benji. So here's the million dollar question. How are men like us who work hard, have good motives and a God-given purpose supposed to fulfill the calling on our lives and the dreams in our hearts, all while establishing sexual integrity, thriving relationships, and a meaningful connection with God? That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. My name is Sathya Sam. Welcome to Unleash the Man Within. Cool. 
Great. Well, I'm here with Benji, uh, founder of Exodus Cry. And man, we've talked about you guys a bunch on the podcast. We had Helen Taylor here at one point. And um, I just can't express how grateful I am to have you here today, man. Thanks for being here. Oh, no. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I I know a little bit of what you guys are doing, and I think it's awesome and just super stoked to connect. So yeah, thank you. Yeah. So let's jump right in, man, because Exodus Cry, you guys are really making waves in some pretty remarkable ways the last, I, I don't know, I would say a couple of years in particular where uh, I know like my friends now who don't even really necessarily give a rip about like sex trafficking and stuff know about you guys and they're talking about, did you guys hear, do you hear about this organization and what they're doing? And so mm-hmm. I think um, I, I want to get there, but I know that your your education was in filmmaking. And I, I guess my question is when you decided you want to get into film and become a filmmaker, did you envision yourself doing these particular kinds of films? Was this always the plan or how exactly did you arrive here? Um, yeah, that's such an interesting question um, because I feel like my relationship with film has changed through different seasons of my life. Um, it's I feel like film has always had like a very deep impact um, on me. And, uh, and I would say that um, part of what felt like um, a lack of a future in film was missing some deeper underlying purpose for it. Uh, and, um, and so it was really the issue of human trafficking that kind of brought things full circle for me where I was able to kind of marry my passion for film and for cinema with, um, a cause that I felt very called to. Hmm. And so, and so in the marriage of, of, um, my passion for film, along with my passion for this issue of, um, fighting human trafficking have found a way to kind of express myself and also um, impact the world. And it's been, it's been a really crazy journey these past 16 years. Yeah. Never would have expected that this path to, to look the way that it has, but it's been, um, it's been quite a ride. That's really cool, man. What, why, why did you feel called to the cause of human trafficking? Um, well, I think for me, like at the time I, that I first learned about human trafficking, I wouldn't have described this as something that I felt was like a life calling. It it was more, uh, one of those things, just my part of my own journey of waking up to the world that we live in. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so I was I was grieved, you know, that that this was happening. I had a very passionate history teacher in college. He gave these amazing lectures and um learned about slavery through that historical context and always thought, you know, if I was alive back then, I would have been an abolitionist and and I was very stirred by the cause of abolition and um just grieved at the idea that mankind would do this like what like that waves like i so um we don't come into this world fully formed we don't come into this world with all knowledge you know and and i think each of our lives are are kind of an evolution into a deeper awareness of 
the world that we live in and all of its complexity and all of its contradictions and the good, the evil and everything in between. And so for me, um, when I learned about the issue of human trafficking, it just felt like, oh my God, like, I can't believe this is actually happening yeah. in our world. And especially with regard to the um, sex trafficking, the idea that somebody would be enslaved in a context where they were expected to have sex with, you know, 10 to 15 men a day. I, I wouldn't describe that as sex, by the way. I would describe that as they were, they would be expected to be raped 10 to 15 times a day by right. different strange men. Like, um, so that thread kind of like pulled at my heart when I first learned about it. And then over time kind of developed into um, what I now understand as a life calling. Yeah. There's a lot to say about that. I'm going to keep that answer brief <laughs> now in case you want to press into it more, but that's in a nutshell. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I can definitely imagine that. And it, it is pretty mind blowing when you do get into the, the weeds of human trafficking and sex trafficking, and you realize what's going on just on a daily basis in the lives of, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. Um, so I, I guess I'm kind of piecing your story together a little bit. So passion for film. And then it's like, oh, shoot, is there really a future here? Oh, human trafficking, sex trafficking. That's something I could get behind. Maybe we can marry the two. And then yeah. wh what do you do after that? What was your next step to try to kind of merge these two things together? Yeah. So what happened is, is after I learned about human trafficking, I just spent about six months, nine months, six to nine months kind of studying um, everything that I could, reading everything I could on this, just trying to learn more. And I had a few opportunities to speak about the issue in some different contexts. And one thing I realized is that, man, people don't even know that this is going on. So let's say I'm in a room of a hundred people. I'd say, how many of you have heard of human trafficking? You might get two or three people that raised their hand. This was back in 2007. And so people just didn't know. And so um, I ended up speaking at a conference of about a thousand people on the issue of human trafficking. Two weeks later, a lady from that meeting approached me. She said, Hey, I look, I know you don't know me. I'm a widow. Uh, and you know, I heard you speak and I felt like God has told me to give you $10,000 to start an organization to fight human trafficking. So for me at that moment, I felt I was already feeling like I kind of wanted to put feet to my prayers, so to speak. I was, yeah. I was kind of felt like I wanted to, you know, I wanted, I, I felt that there was a greater expression of me, um, that, that needed to come out against this, this issue. And I didn't know what that would look like when she said that I felt that we need to tell this story. People need to understand what's going on in the world. There, there was a couple documentaries out. I just didn't feel like they were helpful. One, the production quality was so low. It was like two and a half hours long. It was just basically unwatchable. But another one just randomly decided to put in this very gratuitous, long reenactment of a rape scene. It was just like, ugh. oh, wow. So I just felt like this issue, this story needs to be told. And um, and so that was the initial catalyst. 
And um, so that's what kind of set me on a journey of, of making a documentary about mm. human trafficking. And that was okay. a decision that would end up taking me four years, five continents, 19 countries, 42 cities, investigating the global phenomenon of, of sex trafficking. Okay. And that's what led to nef- Nefarious Souls? Is that the, is that? Yes. It's called Nefarious Merchant of Souls. And that's Sorry, basically yeah. a global sex trafficking and, uh, and was like a, in, in a way, like a longitudinal documentary of just following this story for years, literally around the world and, um, and trying to make sense of it, trying to, to craft our discoveries into something that people could, uh, connect with and yeah um so it's been that film has been just incredibly impactful in terms of just the numbers of people that have um seen it and and been inspired to start an organization or yada yada yada, do a bunch of different things so it's it's been pretty cool to see that that's amazing and i i I mean that's the one thing i've really appreciated about exodus cry is it's very clear that you guys do your homework you put in the research it's obviously the scripts and all that kind of stuff, they, they're vetted somehow because what you end up coming up with is like very solid information, very reliable. And I, I guess I'm curious in your four or five years where you're traveling the world, you're researching, ultimately just trying to understand the dynamics of this. Was there anything, any major takeaways from there that were maybe surprising? Was there something that you're like, oh, I, I, I wouldn't have guessed this to be the case or I wasn't have expected this. Um, anything that came out in particular that, that surprised you or caught you off guard? Um, yeah, I mean, so, so just first kind of getting into this, my idea of trafficking was one of the first stories I heard, there was a 15 year old girl in Arizona. Um, she was outside in her SpongeBob pajamas. Her mom was inside making dinner and uh, a car pulls up, two guys get out, pull her into the back seat. She's blindfolded and taken around the city um, where a gun is placed to her head and uh, and basically traumatized into uh, believing that she better comply with whatever these guys want. They end up taking her to an apartment where they gang rape her and essentially begin the seasoning process of introducing her into a life of trafficking. She's held in a dog cage under a bed for 40 days while she was prostituted out to ads on Craigslist through ads on Craigslist. So people will come to the apartment at all hours. Eventually the police receive a tip, probably from one of the Johns who felt bad afterwards and they raid the apartment and they discover her there and they, they rescue her. Wow. So that was my, like one of my early introductions to this. And then some of the other articles were out were like, you know, situations in Southeast Asia where you'd get behind several layers of the brothel and then the back, you know, backpack, they, they bring out kids in pajamas. And um, so my idea of trafficking at that time was people who are abducted, people who are like forced into these really gnarly situations when we first went out filming, we discovered a different aspect of trafficking, and that was the use of psychological coercion and um, really preying on the um, vulnerabilities of people 
because of a lack of financial resources, because of statelessness, because of uh, you know a, a number of factors that might be at work. And so there was this whole other, so my understanding of trafficking, I would say really expanded, it grew, it evolved over the course of the making of this film. And um, and so that's why we we stayed with the story for so long. We didn't want to just create something that was sensational. We wanted to truly deeply understand the issue. So we spent about four years just listening to people from all perspectives. Um, and it was through that experience that we began to understand a more robust and in-depth picture of all the different things at work that constitute what is, you know, sex trafficking. Yeah. And for that reason, I feel like the film's super helpful because it really connects people to the issue in this, you know, uh, multifaceted way. It's it's pretty complicated, but we try to make it simple so yeah. people can just connect the dots. Um, and um, so, yeah, from that standpoint, I would say there were a lot of things that challenged my early paradigm of what trafficking was. And therefore was a bit surprising. Um, but since we weren't driven by an agenda, like, you know, since we weren't driven by the need to finish it at such and such a date for, you know, whatever news story, we just kind of let our, we gave ourselves permission to just stay with it. Yeah, that's really cool. And it, I mean, it, it shows for sure, like the quality and I, uh, again, just the way you guys tell the story, I think is very, it's very insightful. That came out in 2011, and when I reflect back, I feel like that was around the time that I heard about sex trafficking uh, or human trafficking for the first time. There was like Christine Kane's A21 movement and some of these things that were starting to emerge. Um, for you, like after you did that movie, then what was, I don't know, was that your your understanding? Like were people starting to get an awareness of of what was going on or did it still feel like an uphill battle? Um. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, there came a point where it definitely felt like the world was beginning to wake up to the reality of human trafficking. And then from that point, I would say the the battle lines kind of shifted a bit. And so having been at this for, you know, nearly two decades now, um, I can see where there's been kind of like different stages in, in this fight. Mm. Um we in our own journey began to see how pornography was deeply interconnected with the issue of sex trafficking. Mm. And that was uh, uh, both a discovery and then eventually a conscious decision to address um, because ultimately we felt like we cannot end sex trafficking unless we address the primary fuel for trafficking which is pornography. And there's a lot wow. to say about that, but I'll just yeah. put that. Yeah. No, that, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. So uh, yeah, tons of questions and I'm, I'm so glad that we got here um, so early in the conversation. Cause I think there's a lot we can talk about. I, I guess maybe my first question would be, how did this become clear to you? What, what was it that made you realize, Oh my gosh, the actual thing that's driving this is not, it's not just what I've seen so far. And cause you had invested whatever it would be like six, seven years of your time at that point, what was it that connected the dots here and made you realize pornography is actually kind of at the center of this? Um, 
Yeah. Okay. So, so I would say that coming into this, I, I would say that I'm a bit kind of like innocent minded and maybe a, a bit naive. And I personally didn't have a struggle with pornography. Like I, I was exposed to it as a teenager, mm-hmm. you know, but it was like, somebody had a, you know, a page of a magazine that got passed around the friendship group or <laughs> yeah. an occasional video that would get passed. You know, it wasn't, I didn't grow up the same way a lot of people grow up now. And then, um, and then later I just, yeah, I just didn't, that it just wasn't a struggle for me. So it yep. wasn't something I was thinking a lot about. Um, Which is probably a huge advantage the- for the work you're doing now, I, w- I would imagine. Uh, to so now becoming more aware of how big a struggle pornography is for i would say the vast majority of men out there i feel incredibly grateful that that's not a struggle for me yeah and uh i'm just i'm just grateful like i i i don't think that any of us want to be kind of under the dominion of something that we feel like we can't control and especially in regards to our sexuality so yeah in that sense i'm i'm grateful and uh that i guess you know i just felt maybe a bit protected around that um so so we're out we're you know we're in amsterdam and they there are women literally in windows for sale it's it's like going down i live in southern california so it's like going down rodeo drive and instead of, you know, the storefront is like a Chanel purse or whatever designer clothing. It's like, it's, it's, it's a literal woman, not a mannequin. A literal woman is sits in a window or stands in a window and she's for sale. And just the concept of that was so bizarre. And the mm-hmm. fact that Amsterdam celebrated this as, as, you know, something that was iconic of their city and they were so progressive to welcome this well what we learned is that 80 percent of the women in those windows were from other countries so brought in from eastern europe south america southeast asia so the facade is very shallow um but what would happen is you'd be walking through a red light district and inevitably somebody would walk up to you and hand you uh, like a pamphlet. And it was, you know, one of these women nude. And the idea being that they were advertising her for sale. And so pornography littered the streets of Amsterdam. And so I began to see in a personal way, in in a very direct way, how pornography was being used to market the women who were being sold in prostitution. Wow. So I think from that standpoint that the credit, the industry, the, the prostitution industry is very predatory. They're um, preying on men's visual orientation to lure and entice them through the usage of pornography to then go and buy one of these women. I saw this in not a theoretical way, in a very direct way. And so that was the first thing where I was like, oh, like, see, you know, beautiful girl, she's there. It costs this much. I can do that. 
So pornography was being used to market the women in prostitution. That was the first of five discoveries that I made in terms of ways that pornography was being used uh, or, or ways that pornography intersected and overlapped with sex trafficking. Okay. So that was that was just the beginning point. Okay, got it. Can, can you go into those five different ways? I'd, I'd love to hear about them. Um, yeah, sure. So, uh, so, so that was the first, the second, um, and I'll just kind of run through these, um, pretty quickly. Sure. Uh, the second was that women who were in these in prostitution were expected also to perform in pornography. So they were being used in pornography as well. And I, I, I want to keep qualifying this because I think the, the language around the subject is really important. When we say that they were required to perform in pornography, what that means is they were forced into being raped on video. And then that would be sold as consensual pornography. So that's right. what's going on. So, um, so sex trafficking victims were being used in the production and the creation of pornography. That was the second thing. The third thing is we discovered in Southeast Asia predominantly, but then found out later this happens in other parts of the world as well, where child victims of sex trafficking were shown pornography as a way to groom them into what would they would be expected to do in sex trafficking situations. So young children would be forced to watch pornography as a way to groom and indoctrinate them into what would be expected of them sexually. Wow. They used it to quote unquote educate these young children about this is how you do this and this is how you do this and this is how you do this and and all of this is about love and how you love somebody and like so pornography was being used to train child victims of trafficking. Um, the fourth thing is that pornography was fueling men's appetite uh, for prostitution. So we began to talk to male consumers of pornography. And uh, sorry, we began to talk to Johns. We began to talk to men who were in these red light districts, men who were out buying women, using escort services. And that's a, we actually have done a whole other documentary called Buying Her hmm. that is um, about that specific, uh, you know, issue, uh, men who buy sex. And that's coming out. Um, we're doing a global screening tour of that this year. In every case, these men who were buying the women in prostitution had a prior history of pornography use from childhood. And so we began to see this uh, consistency among the buyers. So they could be from a different walk of life. One could be a construction worker. The other one could be a doctor. They, one could be married. One could be single. There were, there were, there, these men had very diverse backgrounds, but the one thing that connected them was a prior history of pornography consumption from childhood. Wow. So as, so as we were kind of 
developing this story and and trying to understand in a greater way how sex trafficking exists in our world, one of the most important discoveries we made is that, well, this is a supply and demand issue. Sex trafficking would not exist apart from male demand. And so if men stop buying women and children for sex, the entire global industry of sex trafficking would implode overnight. And we would see the largest exodus of human beings from systematic oppression that the world has ever seen. So, so really it was the demand that was the, the root cause of sex trafficking. And so getting underneath that, we realize, oh, pornography is the fuel that is cultivating and incubating that demand. And so it doesn't mean that every person who watches pornography or who struggles with pornography is going to become a buyer, but enough were that it became a point of significant concern. And so, um, so, so yeah, so just taking an inventory for the fact that for a lot of guys, you know, guys, you know, starting as children, having exposure to pornography, then the way that affected their mindsets, their yeah. sexuality, and eventually reaching an age where they go, you know, my girlfriend won't do this, or my wife won't do this, or, um, or I can't even, I'm so, you know, I'm so fucked up by pornography that I, I can't even, uh, get, <laughs> I can't, I don't even have the yeah. social skills to get a girlfriend. Yeah. And so would opt for going out and paying for somebody to have sex with them. Um, so that was, uh, I don't remember where I'm at my list, but that was another like major kind of discovery in terms of how pornography um, connected and intersected with sex trafficking. Actually, I think that was the fourth thing. So the fifth thing, there's one last one. Do you want me to get okay. that or do you want to say it? No, please. No, go ahead. Okay. Um, so just, yeah, real quick. The last one, the last discovery that we made was that the main how pornography gets created. I'm not talking about amateur porn, you know, which in a way has become its own industry. I'm talking about mainstream pornography production. How it gets created is through the use of multiple layers of coercion um, as the backdrop for virtually all pornography. And and that was a pretty disturbing discovery that we made when we investigated the mainstream porn industry. And um, and so one way that we can understand what trafficking is, is this idea that it's, you know, the legal kind of definition of trafficking is the use of force, fraud, or, or coercion. The use of force, fraud, or coercion to get somebody to participate in a sexual act for a price. And um, so that's, you know, commercial sex trafficking. So the these people nece- weren't necessarily being abducted, but they were being coerced. What does that mean? So I'll just cite one example to give you an idea of what I'm talking about with this. Sure. And this is directly from the horse's mouth. This pornographer said to me, Cause I asked them, I said, well, you know, how do you get them to, to do all this 
crazy stuff that you guys are doing. He said, well, I just tell them over the phone, we're going to do this vanilla sex scene and you're going to get paid this much. That's to get them to show up. He said, by the time they show up on set, they've already spent that money in their head. And so, so now we start the sex scene. He goes, and, and it's vanilla. And halfway through it, I changed the script. And now they have to do this, this, and this in order to get paid. By that time, I have the crew, the other people on set. They've already spent the money in their head. And now if they don't go through this, they're going to have to pay a kill fee. They're going to have to pay their driver. They're going to have to pay you know, for the model house that they're living in. All these things are going to come out of pocket. Where's that going to come from? Mm -hmm. So they continue with this other part of the scene that was never talked about or discussed. And then he said this to me, how is that not trafficking? So he was consciously aware that he, he was using these coercive elements in a way that could actually be defined as trafficking in the creation of mainstream pornography. Wow. And I told you some of the brands that this guy worked for, they are the biggest brands in the history of pornography. And so, um, so there's this idea that there's this above board mainstream porn industry where they have yes and no lists and everything's very ethical. And it's, it's all a cover narrative to hold the fantasy intact for essentially, you know, consumers who, who want to believe the fantasy is real in order to keep their, their erection. Um, and, you know, the, the truth, the reality is that the mainstream porn pornography, most pornography is being created through the use of coercion. So that in and of itself is a form of trafficking. So, right. so it wasn't just for areas where pornography was intersecting, overlapping with trafficking. It was that the very production of pornography was happening through the use of trafficking means, coercive means. And so, um, yeah, so those five things are what really compelled us to want to dig deeper and investigate that aspect of things more um, intentionally and in a, in a deeper way. Yeah, thanks for explaining that, man, because I think, um, I mean, that it was worth for the interview just for that, you know, that I think that's very uh, humbling to hear those five different avenues and just how real it is because um you know when you're watching pornography it's a very consumer mindset and sometimes you don't even realize what what actually went on behind the scenes to lead to that kind of production so uh that's that's really really uh humbling and and really helpful i i guess i'm curious like because you mentioned that the the goalposts move right like as you've gone further into this first you're starting to understand trafficking then you start to understand kind of the inextricable link between pornography and trafficking. And I guess I'm curious now, you know, we're recording this beginning of 2023. What are you guys focused on right now? What's, what's got your attention? Um, so we have, so starting in 2020, we began a campaign called, so, okay. So just to put some timelines out there. So 2007, to 2011, we're investigating sex trafficking, creating nefarious. 2012, we sort of whiteboard a session to come up with a game plan for addressing the subject of pornography. 
And from 2012 to 2020, we dug deep into investigating this. I went into the investigated the mainstream porn industry. We read everything, you know, just studied this subject. 2020, we started our first of three foundational campaigns. Okay. The first one was called the Trafficking Hub campaign. And uh, and that was a campaign that was uh, meant to hold Pornhub accountable for enabling and profiting from videos of real abuse and trafficking and so on. And, um, you know, non-consensual content. So their site was infested with criminal videos. They were the largest porn site in the world and a part of New York Fashion Week, had celebrity endorsements, ads in Times Square. So wow. the news of this, I think, was very shocking to people. And it was really, you know, just kind of cracking the surface of this facade and people seeing, wait a minute, there's a more sinister thing going on in pornography than I realized. Huh. And so that campaign went viral through 2020 and has seen enormous traction with the trafficking hub campaign um that addresses the online distribution model of pornography the way that it's able to be distributed online and um and specifically the ability for these large tube sites to essentially put the power in the hands of any user to upload content to their site without any kind of effective moderation system hmm. And, and, and so, um, so that campaign was addressing that. Then in 2021, we released a documentary called Raised on Porn. Yes. That campaign, that film uh, attempts to quantify porn's impact on consumers. That film also went viral and um, gained a bunch of traction. And out of it, we launched a new campaign called Protect Children, Not Porn. And that campaign is focused on um, demanding uh, age verification laws to be put in place for the hosting and distributing of all pornographic content. So big tech, big porn, anyone hosting and distributing porn would have to have an age verification wall in place that would require a you know government issued ID in order to access. So that's that was a campaign that we launched 20, in 2021. We feel like that is a critical part of the future world we need to create hmm. um, for the internet to become a safe place for children to navigate without the risk of exposure to this hardcore graphic, very potent and addictive um, visual substance. So 2022, we, um, we released a new film uh, docu-series called Beyond Fantasy. The first of three episodes is called Barely Legal and addresses the issue of um, barely legal porn. Barely legal porn is takes 18-year-old girls or older and dresses them up to look like they're prepubescent children. And so um, out of that film, we launched a new campaign um, and uh, and that one is meant to raise the age of consent from 18 to 21 years old. 
Um, so that campaign is called End Teen Porn. Okay. And our hope is to abolish and eradicate the entire genre of barely legal teen porn um, and raise the age of consent for entry for performers from 18 to 21. Again, the, so consent for performers or for consumers? So that uh, one is for performers. For performers. Okay, got it. So basically, um, yeah, for anyone entering into porn, you would have to be 21 years old as opposed to 18. 18 to 21 is a very vulnerable age because you're going through this transitional phase of life hmm. where where you're you're sort of like an adult, but not really. Yeah. You just graduate high school. You don't know, am I going to go to college? Am I not? Am I going to get a job? Am I not? Do I want to move somewhere else? Do I want to stay home? And in that transitional space, uh, the predatory pornographers can target and recruit girls. And now these girls are online. I mean, it's not hard to go on Instagram and start looking for girls that are 16, 17 years old, and even start planting the seeds of recruitment at that age. Yeah. Right. You, I mean, it, it's like a, it's like a catalog of attractive girls. So like being able to get online, go find. And so they're, they're recruited at this vulnerable age with the promise of money and fame. And, and, you know, the rest of our culture is saying, this is what it means to be a woman. This is what it means to be an empowered, visible, uh, sexually liberated woman. And, and so, um, what they don't understand is once, once that first pornographic video is made, it's a game changer and it, it, unfortunately it, it changes your whole life. Hmm. An 18 year old is just simply not ready for the sociological, psychological impact of that, nor just the biological requirements of what it requires to be in porn. Um, yeah. and so they just get completely chewed up destroyed and spit out one after the other got it okay that makes sense so then i guess raising the age of by the time if they're 21 the idea is they've developed enough that they could they'd have just a little bit more presence of mind to make those decisions and discern a bit totally yeah now yeah. you've kind of gotten through that transitional period of life it's not to say that at 21 you're the most well adjusted to make a decision like that but it's it's definitely improvement yeah um, I think you could argue for 25. Um, for example, um, you can't rent a car unless you're 25. Yeah. <laughs> There's also now neuroscience research has shown us that the frontal cortex of our brain is not fully developed until we're it's in our 25. mid to late. 20s. Yeah, it's true. And, and that's the judgment center of our brain where we, uh, you know, if, if the pleasure center of your brain is like telling you, you know, this is going to feel good, taste good, you know, whatever. So that's like the, the gas pedal, the frontal cortex is the brakes that say, well, if you eat that gallon of ice cream, it might feel good in the moment, but you're going to feel like shit later or, you know, yeah. whatever this goes against, you know, your other practice of wanting to go to the gym and, you know, so like. I think that an argument could be made for 25. At this point, we're trying to move the needle for in sure. substantive, tangible, and concrete ways. Um, and it's going to be one of those things where we 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 fight this battle inch by inch. We're going to have to fight for every inch of territory that we take. 
because systems of oppression always resist movements of freedom. Hmm. And, you know, even after, um, even after slavery was abolished, there were Jim Crow laws, there was sharecropping, there were white racist terrorist organizations like the KKK, there were ghettos, there were other ways, means that were used to keep certain racial demographics of people in bondage hmm. and held down. And so, um, so it's like Martin Luther King said, you know, there's no progress without struggle. Uh, I think for those of us who care about these issues, we just have to normalize and embrace and buy into the fact that just because we've had an awakening doesn't mean the rest of the world is going to sign up for that. We're going to have to dig our heels in and, and do the hard work to bring about changes in our world that will ultimately benefit future generations. So it's a generational way of thinking. If you look at even the work of Wilberforce, you know, what he fought for in the abolition of the transatlantic slave tra trade took 46 years. It wasn't until he was, you know, three days away from dying on his deathbed that he received news that his legislation would be passed to emancipate slaves throughout the British Empire. Hmm. Um, and so, um, so yeah, so I think for us right now, we're looking at what is the low hanging fruit? What are those areas where we can make the most immediate substantive concrete changes that are also just like make sense and um and then kind of reevaluate from there um people ask the question all the time well don't you just want to see it all ended and <laughs> i'm like well you know personally morally ethically i think our world would be a better place without it but where do you start if hmm. if you just run around like a wild-eyed conspiracy theorist, you know, cross-eyed <laughs> and you know, just you know on on you know on street corners with uh, whatever, saying you know abolish all pornography, you're not going to be taken seriously, and uh, and ultimately you're you're not going to affect the kind of change that that maybe we could by taking simple steps where we can build more agreement. So yeah. my part, I go, okay, you are somebody who's a big fan of pornography. You don't have an ethical issue with it. Fine. We can agree to disagree. Can you understand that somebody is not well adjusted at 18 years old to make a decision that's going to have lifelong implications around, you know, their sexuality and just their future in general, the person can say, Okay, I can see that. Great. That's a good starting point, you know? Yeah. So yeah. we've had to navigate conversations with people that are on all sides of the aisle. And uh and so for us, it's like, where can we build agreement to move the needle on some things that really make sense? You know, another one like we're that we've partnered with people in the porn industry on is this isn't for children. So <laughs> why isn't there an age verification wall in place? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, like it just, I think we can all agree in the, uh, that in the necessity to have that kids yeah. are online now. And, um, and, and we have the research now to show that this has a detrimental impact. If you're exposed to this as a child, you just don't have the emotional psychological apparatus to handle 
that you, you, you it's just it's just like it's like ripping a rosebud open before it, it you know blossoms with you know over time with sunlight and everything that it needs like right. you just rip rose open you're just going to tear that thing apart and so we are seeing a generation of children's sexuality be ravaged by pornography yeah. and uh we should all be able to agree in those basic protections for them so i think for us just across the board we're trying to lay a foundation of the campaigns that we think are the most important to move the needle in these very substantial ways and uh and my hope is that we get there sooner than later because um we're seeing the effects of a pornified generation all around us and it's it's not it's not good yeah i i totally agree i'm certainly seeing everything on the back end you know people who did grow up with it and unfortunately usually they've they've gone too far. It's gone beyond the vanilla pornography and they've done something they thought they would never do. And that's usually when they reach out for help and we're, we're seeing it more and more and more. Um, Benji, I know people are going to want to support what you guys are doing. And I know that you guys have no shortage of initiatives or ways that people can plug in. What are some good ways for our, our listeners to check out what you guys are doing and maybe get behind the cause a little bit more? Yeah, we're really active on Instagram. I would say that's kind of like our primary social media platform for output. Okay. Um, and so just sharing our stuff is huge because of like these campaigns, petitions. We really depend on the larger community of people who want to be a part of a movement to see change happen. Yeah. So um, so I would just invite you know your listeners to to follow us at our Instagram account on and um, share our stuff. And, and then beyond that, you know, like we have a, an abolition retreat we're doing in like Tahoe in August. If people really want to kind of deepen their resolve, that would be something great for people to come to. We're doing um, film premieres around the world right now. So people can, can connect with us around that. Um, and then um, if people are interested in checking out our website, you know, we we're able to do this like front lines work based off of the financial contributions of random everyday people, soccer moms, you know, just really anyone out there who's a kind of like concerned citizen. So we welcome financial partnership from people who would say, you know, I really would like to just kind of like support the effort, um, but I don't have all the time and the bandwidth. Um that that really helps us a lot to to you know continue to stay engaged in this so okay that's amazing well yeah and i i can vouch for the instagram page it's phenomenal i follow you guys i love the content i see on there and just in general i i i can't show my gratitude enough for what you're doing because i um i dream of a day where my business doesn't need to exist because we've done so much work on the front end to to create a better a better environment a better world where people can make these better decisions and so um we need you guys and I'm, I'm just so grateful man so thank you for your time and thanks for what you're doing really appreciate it absolutely no thank you I, again i just appreciate the opportunity to talk with you this is yeah I, I i'm so grateful for what you guys are doing and it's it's and I, actually an honor to just be able to share this time so thank you thanks benji appreciate it well there you have it wow what a guy very cool to learn from benji today and hear a bit of his heart, uh, hear an incredible story of just how this thing all came to be. And man, these guys are moving mountains. And I, I can't stress this enough. Like when you're in recovery, the people you're around, 
matters. You know, you can't just be around anyone. It really matters who you spend your time with. And I just, after an hour with Benji, I was just inspired. I was feeling fired up and just had a new perspectives on, on a lot of different things. And so uh, I hope the same was for you. Go check them out. And you know what? I'm just going to cut to the chase. Like, yeah, go follow them on Instagram for sure. The link's in the show notes. Take a look at the Abolition Retreat, the film premieres. But guys, go donate to these people. Like, these these guys are doing an incredible work. I can't think of a better cause other than your local church. I really cannot think of a better cause for your generosity. These guys are going to use your money well. They are going to further the mission to, uh, you know, eradicate things like sex trafficking, um, certainly like early childhood exposure to pornography and a whole other plethora of issues. And I don't, there's no other organization I have more confidence in, in these endeavors. So, uh, so please be generous with them, go and support a good cause. And you know what, even if like, I know some of you have done arrangements where like, if you have a relapse, you'll go make a donation to charity or whatever. Uh, I don't, I personally don't really endorse those, endorse those practices. I think they're a little bit silly, but what I will say is uh, making putting putting your money where your mouth is does does go a long way. And if you're really serious about recovery, and you know maybe you don't have money for a program like Deep Clean, go make a donation to Exodus Cry because you're still going to invest in recovery um, just on a more preventative side of it. Because if these guys are successful in their initiatives, they are literally going to change how the next generation gets exposed to pornography and even how we experience sexuality in our society and our culture today. And I just can't think of a better way to invest your resources. So links are in the show notes. Go uh, go nuts and uh, and be generous. And if you are looking for something more systematic, maybe you're like, okay, I'll make a donation, Sathya, but I want the me. I want the gist. I want to get free of this stuff once and for all. Well, you might want to check out Deep Clean. We're a systematic recovery process for helping men recover from sexual misbehavior. And our, our real thing that makes us different is we go after the roots. Okay, a lot of people settle for surface level behavioral modification. We are interested in transformation of the heart and you becoming the man God made you to be by resolving the root issues that are holding you back in your calling, um, in, your, uh, in your relationships and otherwise. So there's a link. And if you click that link, it'll take you to book a time with our team. There's a video that explains what we do and then you can book a time. And if that sounds interesting, then hey, we'd love to sit down and speak with you and see if you're a good fit for what we're doing here. So the link's in the show notes. Without further ado, I'm out. Talk soon, guys. Take care. Bye-bye. Hey, everybody. It's Thea again. Thanks for listening to Unleash the Man Within. I wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a free ebook that I wrote for you called The Ultimate Guide to Porn Recovery. It provides a basic framework for the recovery process and a few of my top tips completely free of charge. You can get it now at www.ultimaterecoveryguide.com. That's www.ultimaterecoveryguide.com. Now, if you've been impacted by the podcast and you want to show some support in less than 60 seconds, there are three ways you can do that. First, you can leave a rating or review on your podcast platform. This lets people like you know that the content here is valuable. Secondly, you can share this episode with someone in your life that might benefit from the content. If you're passionate about helping other people experience freedom and success in their lives, this is one of the easiest ways to do that. And lastly, you can subscribe. I personally only listen to the podcast that I subscribe to. If you're seeking daily encouragement, guidance, and insight in your recovery journey, I highly recommend subscribing to Unleash the Man Within. Thanks for listening. I look forward to connecting with you very, very soon. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast by Sathya Sam and his guests are for general information only and should not be considered medical, clinical, or any other form of professional advice. Any reliance on the information provided is done at your own risk.